Tell me what you see. I see my laptop screen, a microphone, a wall of blankets, and your voice in my ear as I try to record the next hit podcast while the world's in lockdown. I don't know. It's it's also like when you go in, like it's huge, it's massive. Like it, it's not so much like wide, like it's just tall too. So the lights hit you, and like it's all just open air. So people are just like the sound and the lights. Like it's kind of the whole experience, especially when you're like a kid. It's just. And so all of the shirts always just smelt like wood and like my dad. And we put it on and wear those shirts to bed. And so anytime I smell like a wood dresser, I think of bedtime shirts and my dad. Welcome back to What Builds Us, a podcast that explores the ways the built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and day-to-day lives. I'm Brian. And I'm Sean. And we welcome you to season two. It's been a minute, uh, which is to say the least in these times as everyone has gone remote. But as we've gone remote, we've really looked beyond our local area and we're super excited to bring you conversations with Uh, people around the world, which we've never done before. So each episode in this second season is going to be exploring how we engage with our built environment through our senses. So we're going to talk through each of the five big senses. Uh, What are they? Sight, smell, (laughs) touch. Uh, Do you think it's worth listening? People know what they are, I guess. Sight, smell, touch hearing and taste and we like this framing because it those five senses are sort of the methods that we use to interpret our lives and experiences in the spaces we interact with yeah it's all bringing us back to this core idea that we have of when we look at a space how does it make us feel and that is so much more beyond sight it's more beyond taste or smell it's everything together and how it affects us and that gut reaction we get when we go somewhere. Everything we talk about here gets into the value of of looking at spaces critically and thoughtfully and we think by breaking it down sense by sense we'll be able to really dig into each of those things that affect, like Sean said, that gut reaction you have. Okay, I have a really bad joke for you, Brian. Do it. Let's (laughs) break it out. As we jump into our site. The first thing we need to put on are our literal glasses. Well, this has been uh, What Builds a Season 2. Thanks for coming, everybody. We're just gonna, we're gonna wrap it up. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was the worst way that that could have come out, but it makes, you know, still, we need those prescriptions. <laughs> put your glasses on and join us for Season 2. <laughs> All my great jokes aside, architects do use this metaphorical term lens as a way that we see our spaces, the parts of us, our bias even, that influences the way that we not only see space, but experience space. So our lenses could be something beyond a prescription and be more something of like, as a queer person, as a non-binary person, how do I see space? Yeah, totally. As a, as a white person, but also, you know, as someone who went to architecture school, these are all lenses that affect how I see space and how I experience space. And all these metaphors, they, they really talk about how we see, 
how we see the world. And so with all that in mind, this first episode is going to be it's going to be about sight. Yeah, thinking back to season 1, so much of our conversations about how we understand architecture, how we see architecture, how we describe architecture, the first thing that a lot of people go to is describing how they see the space. A lot of those first impressions are most commonly associated with sight and what something looked like. So when we went to think about this first episode and think about sight, it's so all-encompassing that we thought a, a really useful way to have the conversation would be to talk to someone who lost their sight, to a, specifically an architect who had lost their sight. Hello, my name is Chris Downey. Uh, I'm an architect that's blind, uh, living and working uh, in the Bay Area of California and a uh, little town called Piedmont, uh, surrounded by Oakland, just across the uh, bay from San Francisco. Um, ever since I was a young kid, I had an interest in architecture. Um, gosh, I must have been like five years old when my parents uh, were, uh, went through a process of designing a new home with an architect. Uh, it was a modern house built into a hillside. Uh, growing up in the house as a kid, it was amazing because it was a fun, interesting spaces, the building wrapping around trees and into the hillside. You could walk onto the roof from the Elp Hill side of the house. And anyway, it was a place where that first real introduction to architecture was about architecture being fun, being creative and and being about something to live in and, and not just a, not just a, a style or an image. And that always sort of stuck with me. And Eventually, we moved to North Carolina and uh, was there until I graduated and then moved to Boston and then uh, went back to grad school. Uh, a lot of a lot of evolution, a lot of different things through there. Uh, worked for various firms in Boston, graduating from Berkeley. I spent 10 years uh, as uh, working with Halton Shaw and then ended up joining a friend doing green prefabricated modular homes. Uh, and that's when I hit sort of a career uh, uh, significant moment where I ended up uh, in surgery to remove, remove a brain tumor and then ended up losing my sight, which kind of redefined my uh, career trajectory and how I would approach things in architecture. Our whole first season was so tied into understanding how important scale is for our minds to understand our environments. Our first big question for him was how to readjust to a world after having your vision taken from you, your vision being something that's so foundational to our understanding of ourselves in a place. Yeah, scale uh, might seem like something that might be lost uh, on you if you're blind, but it's not. It's uh, you uh, in learning. Uh, as I went through my training uh, for a rehabilitation for sight loss, a big part of that training, besides the technology and all sorts of other things, was the process called orient orientation and mo mobility or what in the biz they refer to as O&M training. And with it, it's learning how to walk with a long white cane. It's almost like extending your sense of touch to the ground through the cane. And you feel that through the shaft of the cane as it hits your palm, the palm of your hand. 
but you're also listening to the environment around you and you're listening to how the sound uh, tap uh, comes off the tip of the cane, but it goes off into the world around you, hits surfaces and then comes back to your ears. So you can hear the scale of space. You can hear the proportions of space. And uh, so that that whole process, that amongst other things, is really fascinating of starting to get different uh, a different sense of architecture or uh, perhaps understanding that same sense of architecture, but through different senses. So uh, whether it's the sense of, of hearing or something else, and but also the sense of scale and as it's measured in time moving through something uh, or something as simple as like crossing a street. You know, you're very aware of scale, like how long it's taking you to get across the street, how many lanes of traffic, uh, since it's very much a pedestrian experience, your distance in time, which is really a statement of scale relative to the, the environment you're moving across. It's really wild to me when we lose our understanding of a space or our understanding of the function of a space, even what our mind grabs a hold of to start to make sense of it. And I think that's when we attune into our other senses again. We think a lot about the first impressions of space. And we were curious how Chris can use these abilities and use his other senses to, to both build an understanding of space and, and also navigate a space for the first time. I'll often just kind of pause and I'll just tap my, my cane on the ground and I'll just listen and I'll try to hear the space around me. Uh, and with that, I might hear the proportion of the space uh, but I'm also simultaneously listening for, if, like if I know if I'm gonna take an elevator to go to another floor, dings once for going up, going, dings twice for going down. Uh, always listening to hear that if that's what I'm targeting. And uh, then it's a matter of if I hear it, then it's a function of how to, how to get there. And so I then have to sort of figure out how to negotiate through space around obstacles as an architect, I tend to hypothesize, yeah, what's the diagram? Every now and then you get into something like, this is completely atypical. <laughs> when you're new to, to blindness and you're going through that training, the O&M training, a, a typical thing to do is what we call shorelining. And that's where you take your cane and you swipe, uh, you know, left and right, but you might swipe to the right to follow the edge of a wall where the wall hits the floor. Really shorelining you using that position of the wall to, to keep, you know, keep you straight, keep you out of trouble. You start realizing there are these subtle things, whether it's sounds or the sense of a wall sort of near your right side, and then you, you maintain that feeling or you maintain that sort of equilibrium of sound as you're moving through the space and you use that to maintain your position, that linear path down that hallway or uh, mm. open space. Chris talks about using sound to understand scale and to understand space, which is something we can all do. And honestly, we probably all do subconsciously, but paying attention to that and paying attention to that sense will really change uh, our perspectives and experiences. It reminds me of how every time we would travel together, we would snap our fingers in any new space and kind of hear how it resonated. And it tells you a lot about the space and also how it's made up. And it's also just kind of cool to like tune into how a space sounds. 
it, I, I think that's really true. And it's something that I started experiencing when I was going through that training and in experiencing uh, architecture, building spaces that I knew cited. And I started relearning them uh, uh, in, in more multi-sensory ways and how a visual agenda might you know, in terms of a proportion or, or the look of things, you know, how it could affect the, through its materiality or whatever, it could affect the space, the other sensory experience of the space. And, but as an architect, it made me start thinking about how you could be far more intentional about those things rather than it being accidental. It's not just about the eyeballs. It's about the body that comes mm -hmm. along with those eyeballs. <laughs> how could you really design with the whole sort of multi-sensory toolbox so to sort of achieve that those same goals but quite frankly in doing that achieve a richer uh, experience a richer uh, palette and how it all really can works together to contribute that sort of organic whole that we're typically after We've talked a lot about thresholds as a guide. As you move through space, they're, they're a guide for changes. And obviously, Chris experiences these changes and these thresholds very differently. I think, I think a lot about uh, when people ask me about you know, sensory experiences in places I like. Yeah, I go back to one a transition. If you take a ferry into San Francisco, uh, and you land at the ferry building in San Francisco, you land at the waterside and you hear the sound of seagulls. You pass through the ferry building and it's this long sort of threshold to the city. And, and then you pass through that space and boom, you're out on Embarcadero Street and the sound of all the traffic and it's like the city unfolds in front of you. And it's uh, those transitional spaces. It really heightens your appreciation of those experiences at either side. Yeah, it made me think of a couple different uh, museum experiences, one being the Kimball Art Museum in Dallas Fort in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, and I had never been there sighted, but I and I went there blind for the first time and uh, was really excited to, to hear what that space would be like, to hear the vaults, to hear the proportions of the space. And, and I was like stunned. It was it was a completely neutered experience. I couldn't hear the space. I, I going back and forth between the vaulted space and the space between them where I knew the ceiling was low and connecting the different vaults and, and I, I couldn't hear the difference. And then I picked up some other things where I, it made me remember that uh, Khan put uh, travertine uh, flooring uh, on the structural grid of the, of the building. And then there was wood flooring in the sort of as panels between the structural grids. And I then started feeling that modulation of space through both what I could feel under my foot, but also through the cane. And I started picking up on that and thought that was kind of cool. And I could then also notice this, the difference between the gallery spaces moving from one to another because of that. You know, Chris is tuning in to his prior understanding of a space when he's lost, which I think we all do in some ways, tune into the other qualities of a space 
to help us find our way when we're lost about the space or even the function of a space, right? Yeah, that previous understanding combined with being really attuned, you know, when he says, oh, I could feel the travertine on the structural grid. He's feeling changes to the flooring material. He's feeling changes underfoot. Paying attention to things like that, you can really build this amazing sense of space. But then at one point I turned out of one of the galleries and stepped outside to a space where it had an exterior vault, but it wasn't an interior gallery space and it had a concrete floor. It was otherwise open, but with one tap of the cane, the whole space just came alive. I could hear the entire length of the of the that vaulted space and I could hear the, the fountain courtyard off in the distance off to the right side. And it made me realize that the acoustic you know, acoustical engineers had been busily at work on the interior, quieting down the space, but it in effect completely neutered the space from that ex more experiential, experiential level. Yeah, being sighted is another one of those lenses that we were talking about earlier as, as a way that you perceive and understand your environment. And yeah, when, when we enter a space, we, we bring preconceptions about what it's like based on what we've learned, but also visual clues, what it looked like as we arrive. Visually impaired people have to do the same thing, but with a different set of tools. In a world where I learn space and engage in drawings in a tactile form, reading embossed plans, I have drawings that are like 16 inches wide by 220 inches long to be able to put the whole plan out in front of me and trying to understand where you are and move through it. Uh, relying on the sense of touch. There's a uh, organization, well, the Lighthouse for the Blind, they have a, a department called the Mad Lab, the Media and Accessible Design Lab, and they have do a lot of tactile maps, trying to make the visual graphic world uh, accessible to those without sight. And so they, they do a lot of work with T-Map. It's called T-Maps. It's like Google Maps for the Blind, and you just supply your address, what you want, and you can get a scaled map of that area any place in the U.S. and some places internationally automatically generated, uh, and they ship you the, the map. And, but the point of those maps is not to, not to walk around referring to the map as you go, because it's kind of hard to have a flimsy piece of paper and read it through touch. The strategy with those tools is to map in your mind before you go What's your path of travel, your intended path of travel, and what can you recognize along the way? Uh, so it's really a very uh, uh, overt strategy of building a mental map of a model before you go there uh, so that you can effectively navigate it once you're there, if you're so lucky to have access to a, a map. So it does lend itself to the idea of how do you think about navigation? How do you plan to, to move through a space? And it, it made me think of a time I went to give a talk at the uh, University of uh, Cincinnati uh, School of Architecture, a building designed by Peter Eisenman. And I was talking with a professor there who I knew I needed to go someplace else. He was like, oh, I'll, I'll take you there. I can't begin to tell you how to get there from here. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's hard enough sighted to, to get around this place. There's no way I can tell you how to do this. <laughs> so I'll take you there. 
You know, a lot of this is reminding me too of the conversation we were having in episode four with Anne Katrin about layers and just the power of understanding the story behind something, how much more connected you feel to it. You know, it's like food in a way. If you talk to somebody about how they made the dinner for you and what went into it and what the process was, and you see it as the end result, I think it will taste better and you will have more emotional connection to it than just picking it up somewhere and eating it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, architecture on that very detail level tells that same story. And Katrina is so thoughtful about the stories that architecture can tell, especially through material, but, but just in general. And, and Chris is reading these same stories in his own way, with his own lens, and considers new groups in the design of space. He's, he's really expanding upon the stories that, that space can tell us and, and what we can tell it. Yeah, that breath that we take when we enter a space is us adding to this mental map that we have of the world around us and how we experience it. And that gut reaction that we have, that like intense moment when we first enter, like a new threshold, that's us adding to that map. It's us learning, it's us anticipating, it's us gathering information, and it's us processing and knowing what to expect and what might come next. That's so true, because I think that we have lots of mundane places, right? Like. You know, it, it, the walk to the nearest train station to your house. Remember when you used to take the train to go places? You know, that walk, you're not probably, at least I'm not, paying attention so much to the senses. And then say maybe the seasons change and, and that big tree on the corner is now bright yellow. Suddenly your senses are engaged, right? Or, or you can smell those, those leaves on the ground. And it builds out that map in what previously might have been kind of a gray you know, uh, unclear area of that map is, is now is now bright. It's so funny to me when something that we're experiencing is so influential that we are force ourselves to find words to define it. Like whenever I walk outside and it's new winter and I'm like, do you smell the air? Do you smell winter? Because I can smell winter. Do you know what I mean by that? And like, and I'm not doing a good job describing it, but that sensation is something that's relatable and it's something that's noteworthy and it means that time has passed. It means that we're entering a new chapter and it's it's not visual. It's it's me stepping into something and being like bombarded with this new sense. Yeah, you're totally right. There's so many non-visual cues that words can't describe. That, that smell of winter, I can picture it so clearly. I'm probably not my brain, more in my nose, but I know exactly what you mean and it's something that's probably there all the time. I think when I walk out of the house on just a normal Tuesday, there's still a really strong non-visual smell there. I'm just not attuned to it. But if I was, I think it would give me a much stronger sense of place and, and memory of a place as well. Yeah, I'm thinking right now that a successful space in this way is something that is memorable and a way to create a memorable experience in a space is when you engage with the human's ability to smell it or see it or touch it or feel it or taste it. It's like the more that we engage with our senses in a place, the more we're able to remember it, the better experience we have, the more influential it is on us. So besides his amazing and, and 
thoughtful understanding and appreciation for space. Chris is a working architect. He works on projects all over the world, and he brings a really unique voice to, to the teams that he's a part of. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, it's something I'm aware of. You know, I might do a lot of work with uh, acoustics. It's something I'm really fascinated in. But then I'm always aware of the fact that there are a lot of people that are experiencing hearing loss. Uh, and then think about people that are deafblind. So it's really where I have to be very aware of using all the tools at our disposal. You know, all the different mm -hmm. things, the haptic uh, possibilities, compositions, so that you could recognize underfoot or through the touch of a cane, sort of the, the structure, the, the progression and scale and the movement of space. Just realizing that, that in doing that, you're sharing the architectural intent, design, quality for people to experience in different modalities that might be, be missing one, realizing that it's, it's really there creating that rich environment for everyone, use it, engage it, and engage within it and appreciate it. I really love hearing Chris talk about how designers should use all of the tools at our disposal to make spaces best for everyone. Yeah, all this stuff is important as a designer and also as a person, right? To consider all your senses when you're experiencing a place, remembering a place, noting a place, and recalling a place. And we really appreciate you being on this with us. Yeah, oh, this has been a, a real joy, Chris. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I, I'm really excited that you're covering this topic in your podcast. I think it has so much potential and, and value in our profession. So good luck with it. For more information on Chris, you can head to his website, www.arcforblind.com. That's with the number four. Um, and you can also check out our website for links to more articles on Chris, his exact website, his amazing TED Talk, and so much more. So that's it for episode one. Thanks so much for listening in. We're, we're so excited to launch this uh, second season with all of you. Yeah, thank you for coming back. Our next episode is going to be all about smell, and it will be out in one month from today. Maybe a joke here about noses. Smell you later? Gosh. <laughs> oh, is it, that's, that's a stage direction, Sean. It's a stage direction. You're not supposed to read those. <laughs> that would be that funny. <laughs> noses. Um, so we'll be sharing a bunch more info on this topic, all about sight and, and more of Chris's work. Um, up until that next episode comes out. So keep a, a diligent eye on our, on our Instagram. It's at coalesce.design. Um, any thoughts or feelings, questions, or comments, you can drop us a line on there. Or, of course, send us an email. That's info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website. There's lots of good stuff there at coalescedesign.org. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Chantel Trombley and Brian Sanford. Mixing and editing is done by me. Music is by the Will Gooding, who we love and is in California now. Um, you can find more music from him at www.thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. And yeah, I guess we'll see you in a month. See you in a month. Bye. <laughs> Make and model H4N Pro Zoom mic. <laughs> More stage directions. <laughs> I will read anything. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Burgundy. Blah, 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 blah. Sweet. <laughs>